Support for Father David Abernethy and his ministry at the Pittsburgh Oratory of St. Philip Neri comes entirely from the donations of community members and listeners like you. The creation of future groups and podcast episodes depends on your commitment and generosity. We humbly ask that you consider a monthly gift of $10 to the Pittsburgh Oratory in support of Father David and his work. To make this or any gift, please visit www.thepittsburghoratory.org, click the Donate button, and write Father David in the notes section. You can also make a recurring or one-time donation directly through Podbean. Your commitment and ministry-sustaining support are greatly appreciated. God bless you, and enjoy the podcast. was in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Okay, welcome back to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And uh, uh, once again, we're picking up with the first step of the ladder. Uh, For those who are new, there are 30 steps that uh, John lays out for his readers. The work itself is a response uh, to a request from a neighboring abbot uh, to give a kind of direction, practical guide, if you will, on the spiritual life and the ascetical life. And so it's, it's not a theoretical or abstract text. It's not laying out how one lives the monastic life or even giving so much in terms of the specifics about one's day-to-day spiritual role. I think what John is interested in giving to his readers is uh, sort of a practical guide in how one deals with and struggles with the passions Uh, how the passions manifest themselves, uh, and then what the fathers put forward as potential remedies for them, as well as how one grows in virtue and develops uh, one's prayer life, in particular, the unceasing prayer that the the fathers often speak of. And so the image of a ladder is not something new within the spiritual ladder, uh, within the spiritual writings, spiritual tradition, and it's also something that we find in scripture, so it's sort of a common image in that regard. Uh, But John's writing is certainly unique and offers us, I think, the deepest and most profound guide to the spiritual life. The focus, as you will see, is on the active life, and the, the fathers didn't understand active and contemplative in the way that we do. Uh, especially in the West, we typically think of the active life as engaging in uh, charitable works or works of mercy. But the active life uh, for the the Desert Fathers and in the Eastern spiritual tradition really has to do with the struggle with the passions and overcoming them. The contemplative life is the fruit of that. And so the first three steps have to do with the break with the world. And that's what we're looking at now, renunciation, exile, detachment. So how one initially makes that break with the world and the things that influence one in the most overt fashion. And in particular for the monks, that would be leaving the world and detaching themselves from everything uh, as they enter into the, the monastic life. 
and as, as well as embracing the life of obedience under an abbot or under another spiritual guide. Uh, but then the next, let's see, would be, let's see, 20, let me take a look here for a second. The last four steps are on the contemplative life, so union with God, and they are on stillness, prayer, dispassion, and love. All the rest in between, so 20-some of the steps are all, all have to do with overcoming the passions, what they look like, and their accompanying virtue, or their marrying virtue. And this is what the, the, the focus of most of the book is on. And that might seem to us to be a rather negative approach to things, or a negative anthropology. But I think it's rooted more in experience, what it is that we struggle with in a fallen world, what it is that we struggle with in our tendency towards sin, and are being drawn back to it over and over again. How do we free ourselves from the grip of the passions, the sins that have become habitual within us? And so even in a sense, feeling as if it's against our will or against our judgment, we go back to them over and over again. Uh, the book of Proverbs says, as a dog returns to its vomit, so a sinner returns to his sin. And so there's something about it that it holds an attraction to us. And St. Paul at one point says, who will deliver me from this body of death? That he, he knew, despite his love and his desire for Christ, that there was something in his bodily desires, his appetites, uh, the longings that he had as a human being that kept drawing him back to the things that he even hated and had grown the hate that did not fit with his identity as uh, one who was called to the life of grace. And so the emphasis throughout this text is how it is that we engage in this spiritual battle, uh, how it is that we deepen our desire for God, and also then deepen our freedom to embrace the grace that he's given us, and so live the life that he's, he's made possible for us. Uh, as I mentioned, John typically we'll begin with a little bit of an introduction to each step to describe the, the, the topic at hand or the passion that he's addressing. Uh, he'll make use of various definitions and then sort of detailed uh, analogies he'll, he'll, he'll use to help us understand them. And then a final summary. So each step has a, a very similar structure. And I think that's part of the attraction, honestly, over time, is that John teaches with this great clarity uh, as you make your way through what is often some of the most difficult things to deal with as a human being and uh, makes it uh, understandable in terms of how we might wrap ourselves around how these passions manifest themselves, how they, what they look like in our day-to-day -day life, life, their subtlety, but then also how the, the fathers show us how to deal with them. The, the fathers, I think, precisely by entering into the desert and by embracing this kind of radical renunciation and detachment from the things of this world, we're able to focus upon this struggle, which is largely psychological, that has to do with the thoughts, with the emotions, the imagination, as well as one's desires. And by entering into, if you will, the laboratory of the desert, they are able to see the subtleties of the working of the human mind, the subtleties of temptations, the work of the evil one, how he seeks to draw us away 
from the life of grace. And as I've mentioned in some of the other groups, I have often thought of them as the first depth psychologist in that regard. They knew the workings of the human mind with a radical clarity that rivals anything that I've read in modern psychology. The language is much different. The anthropology and the psychology and the language that is used to describe it is much different. But I think they had a fuller vision of the human person, precisely because they didn't set aside the fundamental element of who we are, soul, uh, our, you know, what God has endowed us with and our relationship with God. And once you, if you set that out of our understanding of what it is to be a human being, you really truncate your understanding of what, what it is to live in this world, the nature of, of our struggles and how to overcome them. And we've made this radical shift in our day to therapeutic man and therapeutic woman, that we look to the, the psychological sciences to understand some of the trials that we've undergone, the wounds that we endure, the addictions that we struggle with. Uh, and so we articulate these things in a much different way. But the more one searches the, the fathers, you begin to see that they understood these things with a greater clarity than we ever could in our own day. And uh, the problem is, is it requires work. You can't be lazy and approach the, especially the Eastern fathers, because you have to be willing to immerse yourself uh, in the language, uh, in their understanding of the, the Christian life as a whole, liturgy, uh, as well as their anthropology, and allow that to develop over the course of time. And you can't approach it simply as a text that you're reading for information that our understanding comes through experience in the same way that it did for them. Their wisdom came through and, it, uh, and their knowledge came through experience, both of God and, as, and of themselves. And so the way that we would approach psychology or the way that we would approach uh, theology in our day would be completely foreign to them. They wouldn't understand, as I think I said last time, schools of theology outside of the ascetical life and outside of a re living relationship with God. For them, that would be the height of absurdity, that one only comes to know God through the ascetical life, through moving away from sin and embracing the grace that he's offered to us. And so for them, theology done outside of that context is demonic theology. And, uh, and I would say the same would be true of something like psychology, that it's always going to be seen through a distorted lens when you cut out a whole aspect of who we are as human beings, and not just one aspect, but the most important of them. Anthony. Um, if we've departed from the tradition of the fathers, which is a bad thing to depart from them, um, was it at the time of the scholastics or was it earlier? And who, what schools or types of people exist, at least in the West, who would be good to follow? The, the oratory follows their tradition. Is there anybody else to look for the authentic tradition of theology? Well, I think it does exist in the West, certainly. And, and you find it, and Thomas, you know, his understanding of, of the human person, the things that we struggle with, the passions, capital sins, 
but the language is so different. And I, so I, th I think a big part of the problem certainly was distance, language barrier that allowed them to articulate the understanding of the person in a, in a different way. And I think that made dialogue very difficult. So distance, difference in language, and then you've, you know, with the, the, the schism itself, obviously, it only deepened, I think, uh, you know, the difficulty in engaging in a, a kind of uh, discussion where there's a kind of hermeneutic of, of generosity towards what the other is saying, that uh, there often wasn't that capacity. And even if we think about it for a moment, that some of the early councils, uh, like with the, we read Isaac the Syrian not too long ago in this group, and it took a hundred years before the teaching of, I forget which council it was at this point, for the teaching of the council to reach the church in Syria, because it was so removed uh, geographically from the rest of the church and even from the Eastern church itself. So the Syriac church was very far removed. And when they, when they received the teachings of that council in Syriac, it seemed nonsensical. It seemed heretical what was being said. And so from very early on, there was this difficulty with language. And I, I think that's followed us along uh, from generation to generation. And, you know, one could talk, you know, for a long time about the contributing factors to, you know, the, the, the distance between East and West in that regard. Uh, but on some levels, it has been maintained. And I think we see it in some of the Western writers too, their immersion in that history, primarily through St. John Cassian, who brought the wisdom of the Eastern fathers to the West, to the Western monastic tradition. And so Benedict has as required reading St. John Cassian's conferences and his institutes. And so there was an immersion and understanding of that tradition and uh, the, this nature of the spiritual battle and spiritual life. Uh, but I think what we see develop over the course of time and generations, especially after, um, I would say, you know, from the, uh, the Protestant Reformation on, uh, the development of these individual schools of, of spiritual life, maybe earlier, I would say, uh, not long after the split, but, you know, Franciscan, Carmelite, Benedictine, Jesuit, Theatine, you know, all these different uh, communities emerge, but also a kind of practice of the spiritual life emerges with them. And as time goes on, uh, even though these individuals may have been immersed with or familiar with the tradition, like Philip Neary, his, I've mentioned before, his two favorite spiritual works were Cassian's Conferences and the Ladder of Divine Ascent that we're reading at the moment. Uh, but as time goes on, uh, you see uh, the Western spiritual tradition become unmoored from the, the larger spiritual tradition. And uh, when that happens, uh, I think you, you find people picking and choosing various elements from uh, various spiritualities that are tied to charismatic figures, uh, say Ignatius and uh, um, his, you know, spiritual practices that uh, develop and means of discernment. So people begin to pick and choose from various traditions, and it's almost a hodgepodge view of the spiritual life. And we see that magnified in our own generation to the point where people, 
speak of being spiritual but not religious, so they're unmoored from the, the, the larger tradition of the church as a whole, but also spiritually unmoored from that tradition. And, uh, and so then we, we lose this capacity to think about ourselves and our spiritual s- struggle with any kind of clarity. And you begin to lose elders that can also connect people with that tradition because they're not familiar with that. And that's true East and West. Uh, you know, the Eastern churches in, uh, in, uh, in the Eastern rites, you know, I've talked to so many over the course of time and uh, everyone is familiar with the latter divine ascent in the Philokalia and Cassian's conferences. But how many parishes offer groups where you sit down and say, this is, this is the formation that we need in the spiritual life. If we believe that Christianity is an essentially ascetical religion, that it means living our life in a particular way and struggling with our sins in a particular way and developing a life of prayer in a particular way. If you set all of that aside and it, it's, and it simply becomes fulfilling certain obligations or we approach the faith in a moralistic uh, fashion or legalistic fashion, then our, the fuller vision of what it is to, to be a son and daughter of God, one who's destined to share in the life of the Trinity, theosis, deification, uh, all that begins to break down. And again, you know, people are falling sim- simply, uh, I think, in so often their own emotion. What is, you know, whether or not they feel inspired to pray with their conscience as often formed more by the culture or distorted uh, culture within the life of the church, not rooted in the scriptures, not rooted in the fathers. And I think what we saw in the, you know, that call of the Second Vatican Council of resource mod or returning to the sources never really took place in any developed sense. What we found was experimentation liturgically take place uh, but nowhere, you know, do I see any evidence of the sustained effort to immerse oneself within that tradition. And theology becomes more and more removed from the ascetical and mystical life. And it becomes more and more abstract, I think, and uh, less formative, I think, in terms of how we, we live out the gospel. And so we find ourselves in a very difficult position because no one's going to give it to us. And it's very difficult to find elders who have lived this life and that we would have access to that would articulate it for us in any sustained fashion. And to do it in such a way where we aren't falling in, as we've mentioned before, into a kind of dilettantism where we're reading simply to say that we've read certain fathers, that we're plowing through the the great spiritual writings to say, you know, okay, I've read this. Oh, I know what John Cassian wrote, or I know what Climacus wrote, but really not seeking to live and embrace what they they taught in a a deep and lasting fashion, where we understand repentance and conversion not as being something episodic, but as a constant daily reality for us as turning toward God, and that the spiritual warfare is being at the heart of our, our life. And uh, I think even just this fundamental point that they saw the active life as the struggle with the passions of engaging in the spiritual battle, that they didn't uh, abstract it from their internal world 
in, in the sense of turning Christianity into a kind of activism. But they saw that the heart had to be formed first by the grace of God. The heart had to be purified in order that one might be able to uh, act in accord with the will of God, not simply be to be following one's own will or own, one's own vision of Christianity. And I think that's what we're, we're seeing take place. We don't have to have the you know, breaking off of various sects from the church, even though there are thousands of those at the moment. I think each and every individual person seems to do that on their own, whether they remain in the church or not. Uh, I think in reality, many people are following their own vision of what, what their relationship with God is to be like. We believe in a revealed religion, that God has revealed to himself to us in a distinct way. And more than that, he's taken upon our own flesh and then through the incarnation. This changes our whole view of reality, our understanding, understanding of our experience of God, but also of who we are as human beings. And uh, once you disconnect from that, then I think your understanding of Christianity uh, becomes distorted. Uh, Deacon Ed. So um, I, there's one thing I would add to what you said. There was, and I'm going to go by Aidan Nichols, who's a, a well-known theologian. I had to study him in my formation. He said there was a clear-cut separation in the West when theology moved out of the monasteries and into the academic settings with the universities. Yeah. The scholastic movement took us away, and there was, in his mind, a clear division between theology, doctrinal, and spirituality. And so the, the one thing about Vatican II, I don't want to dismiss because it's so important. Mm -hmm. Vatican II, you said, is a return to the resources. But if you look mm -hmm. at someone like Karl Rahner, who's like one of the most brilliant theologians and brilliant philosophers, and he writes, the Christian of the future will either be a mystic who's experienced something, or he will be nothing at all, mm -hmm. is going back to that mystical tradition. Mm -hmm. And he is much more aligned. In fact, he's very aligned with the renowned um, Dimitrius Stanilawi and the mm -hmm. Orthodox, who is a contemporary of his. So there was sort of a return to sources in the terms of going back to patristics and scholasticism being thrown out. So there is part of that. But there was a clear-cut division, and we've lost that. And there's you, you have voices in the church today. Um, mm -hmm. Last year, Casey Cole, um, a Franciscan, said, we need to go back to that mystical tradition, what we do well. I agree with him. That's the missing element. But we're not. We're still struggling with that pseudo-scholastic theology. Right. In the and it's individuals doing that, too, little islands. But I've never found, you know, as a, the church as a whole, I don't think we see that. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. In the East, they went through something like this on Monathos, uh, the Kolovades movement, you know, and there was a kind of resource want there too, in terms of going back, you know, and this is where the, the Philokalia emerges, as well as the Evergatinos, you know, Nicodemus and St. Marcarius uh, of Corinth, you know, they, they draw the monks back to this, the Hesychatic movement and the, the wisdom of, of the fathers. And also there's a kind of liturgical renewal that takes place at that time as well. So we see it take place in sort of the microcosm there of Mount Athos in a very beautiful 
way at that time. Uh, but I've struggled for years to see it here. And there's almost a resistance to it that it's, you know, the fathers are often presented as being archaic, you know, or that the, the language is archaic and that it's not, you know, the furthest place that people are willing to go back seems to be Thomas uh, or the scriptures, but everything else is sort of set aside. Although I could be jaded in my view about that, but that's been my experience of things. Ambrose Little. As a lay Dominican, I have to object to the bad mouthing. <laughs> I object. <laughs> uh, you know, I don't think it's an either or thing. I think there is St. Thomas was a mystic and he's a saint, you know, so there's, you know, these, these things are not necessarily at odds, but there is the danger to kind of like do or or think theology instead of just and, and not do theology That's right. like those two need to be together yeah there's a difference between thomas and thomist and i think a lot of people would agree with that and i i do i agree with you in terms of thomas i think there is an articulation there that we do see that it offers a kind of clarity about these things but i i think that movement into the, the schools of theology, you know, the separation from the monastery and the ascetic life in particular. And th I think this is the key thing, the, you know, the, the movement away from the ascetical tradition or seeing Christianity as an ascetical religion, I think is, is pr problematic here for us. You know, when, it's, when it rests within the mind alone, uh, then it's, there's going to be an abstraction that takes place, again, that distorts what God has revealed of himself, but also how it is that we are to live our life in reality with the experience of, of, of the living God is meant to be for us and how that's to transform us now in, in the moment. And that transformation never takes place, I think, fully with simply within the head or through understanding. It's in and through experience in and through the gift of faith. You know, we're never going to be able to articulate simply our way to, to faith or to, to, into that fullness of life that I think is put forward to us by the fathers. So I'm not trying to diminish, and I think I did say that about Thomas, you know, he did articulate it and articulated it very well, but I think we've moved away from that connection to the, uh, to the tradition more and more. Eric. Here comes another troublemaker. First Dominican. <laughs> <laughs> Dominican number one. Uh, <laughs> scholastic number two. So actually, no, I think, I think you know, Rahner is notorious um, in some circles. So I think bringing up Rahner as a role model is maybe not the best <laughs> decision. I understand he's covered in seminary a lot, um, but he also defined... I think Christ as consciousness looking at itself or something like that. The guy Not so much anymore. I don't think he's, I don't think he's so much present within the seminaries as much as he was at one point. Yeah. So where, well, where anyway, <laughs> needless to say, so I wanted to kind of like defend the neo-scholastics and, and um, especially Father Gargula Grange, who I think, you know, more than almost anyone in the 20th century did, a really monumental 
uh, amount of work to bring together um, the whole ascetical mystical tradition, um, you know, including St. Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross. And, and it wasn't, you know, purely rationalistic. It was quite grounded and quite beautiful and quite useful. You know, he talks about the, uh, um, you know, one of the oldest ascetical um, themes going back to the desert, um, the will of God and, and um, you know, living in the will of God and always ascending to the will of God yeah. and things like that. He, he, he writes so many beautiful words yeah, about I, that and he synthesizes it and stuff like that. I, so I got like, I, I'm with you on all that. And Adolf, have anybody heard of Adolf Tanqueray too? He wrote an excellent yeah. book. And then all yeah. those people around Philip Neary's time, uh, Lorenzo Scopoli, who wrote Spiritual Combat. He was a theatine at that time, you know, they were all immersed in that tradition. But when's the last time you had heard of a seminarian going through Lagrange's work in its entirely, entirety, verbatim, and immersing yourself in it? And I think this is my, my what I've seen in my own experience of the seminary and, uh, and observations over time is that these things are passed through and aren't an essential part of the formative process. You know, in terms of our one self-identity as a seminarian or, or future priest, in terms of the ascetical life. And so I'm not saying that they're never studied within the seminary or that these things are never touched upon in, in Aquinas or in any of the other scholastics. I'm saying, is this a fundamental element in terms of the formation that takes place, not only of seminarians and future priests, but of all Christians as a whole? How, what, what is the lens through which we, we view our day-to-day -day life and uh, are giving ourselves fully over to the grace of God and our struggle with the passions. That, that is what's not taking place. So I, I don't want to get into an argument about, you know, whether or not there are elements of that. There certainly are. And certainly there are in Thomist and, and other schools of spirituality as well. Throughout the tradition, we'll find various elements of it. But what I find within the East is this kind of homogeneity, this clear line of thought in terms of anthropology, psychology, the nature of the spiritual struggle, the, the, the nature of prayer. And what I think we find so often in the modern world is a, a fragmentation of that gradually take place, many forces sort of pulling it apart. And you have all these elements that uh, seminarians are supposed to, we were talking one another evening about the study of, uh, of philosophy by pre-theologians. And our own uh, former seminarians were saying, they're, they're studying all the wrong people. These guys are struggling to grasp Derrida, you know, as pre-theologians and who's, they're never going to come across again. And, and nobody's asking why. And, and I think we have to, because we're not, you know, who, who and what are we forming, you know, for the future? And are they going to be able to form others in it? You know, I can't tell you how often people tell me I've been looking for years for a spiritual director and cannot find anyone who can connect me to the, the spiritual tradition other than a, in a hodgepodge kind of way, a very limited fashion. So not to be overly critical, but I think people are hungry for it. They long for it. 
and are struggling and they find nothing to hold on to. And even when they do, in terms of coming into context with, into contact with the great spiritual writings, I think being able to enter into them with any depth. And the same was tr true for me. I mean, this started back in the early 80s for me, a gradual movement uh, in, in the study of the fathers. So it took, you know, 30 years uh, of consistent reading study as well as day-to-day -day life. And the good fortune of, you know, uh, being educated in seminary in a monastic setting, too, which was helpful. Okay, we're moving on to the text. I'm sorry for, for the great digression here. But nonetheless, I think it's important, at least in terms of establishing the value, I think, of immersing ourselves and spending years and not only studying what the fathers are telling us, but seeking to put it into practice. So we're picking up with number four on page 54. And here John does something interesting. He, he begins to sort of to lay out for us uh, the, you know, the various forms of life that exist uh, uh, among the Christians, but among monks themselves and the appropriate ob objectives of their lives. And, uh, and so he, he defines them distinctly for us. I think in order that we might have a frame uh, to begin to view ourselves as we begin to make this journey with him. You know, how are we living out our faith life? What, what does it look like? Do we see ourselves or any reflection of ourselves in what he describes here in the coming paragraphs? He writes, the irreligious man is a mortal being with a rational nature who of his own free will turns his back on life and thinks of his own maker, the ever existent as non-existent. The transgressor is one who holds the law of God after his own depraved fashion and thinks to combine faith in God with heresy that is directly opposed to him. The Christian is the one who imitates Christ in thought, word, and deed as far as possible in human beings. For human beings, believing rightly and blamelessly in the Holy Trinity. So I just want to pause there for one second. So you see what he's doing here already. There, there's one who is an irreligious man who has no belief in it at all, uh, has no thought of God at all in, in his life or in his understanding of himself. Uh, the transgressor is so one, one who's seeking to live it, live the law, but is drawn again and again by his own uh, passions sort of again creates a vision of the Christian life in a depraved way. He shapes one for himself that fits with his, you know, own distorted beliefs or distorted behaviors. And then the Christian is the one who he plays. He describes it very simply: imitates, imitates Christ in thought, word, and deed, as far as that's possible by grace, and believes in the, the most holy Trinity. And so, again, you know, John is not engaged here in a theological treatise, and he's speaking with monks in writing this work, so he's assuming a great deal. But what, what he's saying is that fundamentally we are rooted in a revealed religion, that God has ma manifested himself to us in a distinctive, unique way, definitive fashion, and that this gives rise to a clear understanding of ourselves and also of 
who God is and how he's revealed himself to us, particularly as the triune God, and that this shapes our identity. This shapes the way that we enter into the religious life. And so, uh, to, you know, there is a credo element to our faith. We believe, again, in a revealed religion. And so today, when you hear people say, I'm spiritual, but not religious, that should set off a little alarm for us because we don't, th we don't believe that. And for, for us, that would be the most amorphous, uh, distorted kind of, of reality. Then what, what is it that you're holding on to other than your own perception of the world around you or the, the own image that you've created in your mind uh, or the psychological construct of God that you have in your mind? What, what is it that you're believing in beyond that? And so what Climacus is saying here is that we believe in a God who's revealed himself to us. And outside of that, we cannot call ourselves Christian. Many do, but we can, we can never lose sight of the frame, the fundamental frame in which, in which we live out our faith life. And so what we believe is important. The lover of God is he who lives in communion with all that is natural and sinless, and as far as he is able, neglects nothing good. So the lover of God is going to seek to live in conformity with natural law, with how God has created us, how he's made, made us, and also what he has revealed to us. Uh, and so we seek to live in, in, in communion with the truth that God has revealed both in his creation and also the truth that he's revealed in, in, in and through the incarnation. And we seek to do that as fully as we can. The continent man is one who lives in the midst of temptation, snares, and turmoil, and who is eager to imitate with all his might those who are free from turmoil. So the, the, the continent man you know, is being driven by this vision of those who have obtained a level of freedom through the ascetical life and the life of grace that he begins to desire this good for, for himself, to live this life that is free, which Climacus emphasized last time, that he's, God has created us as free human beings. It's our sin that draws us into a lack of freedom, where we become shackled uh, to our own desires, our own wants, our, our own needs, rather than to the truth and to the life that God has given us. And uh, so the, the continent man at least begins desire, to desire this, even though he's struggling with the passions, with, longs for it for himself. Joseph Caro, or Caro. Uh, yeah, it's Caro. Uh, Caro. Hi, uh, uh, Father Abernathy. Do you prefer Father David or Father Abernathy? Father David's fine. Oh, okay. And, and, and it's, it's Abernathy. We're not Lowland Scots. It's not Lowland. We're not Lowland Scots. We're... Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Abernethy. Okay, great. Um, yeah, I just wanted to, first of all, just say thank you for doing this. Uh, I've been waiting to join everybody until you started over. Mm -hmm. You don't want like come in in the beginning. And so it's a, a real pleasure. I'm glad honored to be here, you know, on the sort of the ground floor or step number one, right, so to speak. Yeah. Um, my question is just about the, uh, these different men that he's talking about. Mm -hmm. Are Are we are we to think of them as sort of a progressive 
or is there an overlap between say like the, the, the one who loves God and the Christian or the, the continent man and the Christian, or are they distinct progressions? Well, both, you know, I think they can be distinct progressions within one's life, but depending on how one is living one's life, as we'll see, one can move back and forth between them, that one can become incontinent in the sense that through negligence, through laziness, uh, through turning away from the grace that one has received, one can be then driven by one's temptations once again. And so it has to engage in a life of deeper repentance, conversion of life, and again, to draw themselves back uh, to the path that they had been on. So again, you know, he's not drawing hard and fast lines for us. I think it's more like broad strokes that we can sort of begin to see ourselves where, where we are in our Christian identity. And, uh, but he does see these as fluid kind of realities, depending on how we're living our life. Okay. Great. Thank you. Okay. Very good. And just so you know, Joseph, this is a great joy for me too, because um, again, for those who are new to the, the group here tonight, this is the first time I've been able to go through the, I've read the book many times over the years, but this is the first time to be able to go through it verbatim. And with a group. And this is always the richest way that I've found to study uh, the fathers. So thank you for joining us and, and for your questions. Uh, let's see, where do we leave off here? The continent man. Monasticism is an angelic order and a state achieved in an earthly and soil body. So in spite of the weakness and the poverty that we experience uh, and the pull of our passions and desires that uh, John sees that the ascetical life and the life of grace can elevate a man to the angelic life that driven by the love of God, but also having a, obtained purity of heart uh, is able to see God, see the things of God, to, to see God, to see the things that are divine. And if you remember, this is what St. John Cassian puts forward as the immediate aim of the spiritual life, purity of heart. And so the monk who's fully embraced the life, who's renounced the things of the world that can pull him away from God, eventually obtains to this angelic state, not that they cast off the flesh, but all of their, the desires associated with the flesh uh, and are become ordered towards their proper end, toward God, or to the good, good that he has uh, set before us or set before those desires. And so there's, there's no disorder there, and so they become angelic in their nature. Uh, a monk is he who keeps the body in, his body in chastity, his mouth pure, and his mind illumined. So he seeks to keep his body in, ch in chastity. So again, the ordering of one's desire. And we talked a little bit about this the last time, how often the word desire comes up in the writings of the fathers, that they did have this clarity that we are desiring beings and that desire is a central part of how we've been created. In fact, it brings us toward God, that uh, the, the root of the word is a sense of lack or sense of incompleteness. And it's part of uh, this desire that leads us to understand that outside of our relationship with God, we are less than what we are to be, meant to be. 
Sir Augustine's thought, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee, that we only find our fulfillment as human beings in and through our relationship with God and in and through the life of grace. And so the, the monk is one who keeps his body in, in chastity. And, uh, and so, you know, we often think about this simply in terms of like sexual purity. But again, I think if we see it rather as ordered desire, uh, it allows us to see chastity as this greater capacity to love and give ourselves in love in the way that God has created us. So there's no distortion there or objectification of the self or other that we approach others only and in and through the eyes of love and the, desires to, the desire to give ourselves in the way that God wills us to. So not simply in a self-seeking way. And I think in, in the West, sometimes, I think we create almost a kind of, of scrupulosity, anxiety, uh, obsessive compulsive uh, view of these kinds of desires. And I think this has grown sort of hand in hand with the, the rise of pornography too, because very early on, especially young men, but men and women are being drawn in to something that really shapes their imagination, shapes their view of the human person of sexuality in such a powerful and visceral way that shapes their imagination in such a powerful way that it becomes for them a passion uh, so deeply rooted that even though they hate and despise it, even though it causes them uh, great anxiety, depression, they're drawn back to it over and over again. Like we've, we've never lived in an age where we have had something form and shape the mind, the heart and the imagination as we do now. And not in a static way, but in this really powerful way that, uh, that touches upon all these different faculties for us as human beings. That's why it becomes so deeply rooted. So at the age of 12 or 13, we have young men becoming uh, you know, addicted to pornography. It shapes the way they view themselves and others in this profound way, but it also creates this kind of internal disintegration that, uh, that alters their perception of reality around them and the way that they enter into relationships. And uh, it's, it's really an enormous cross. And uh, this is where I think the ascetical life is desperately needed. And people find themselves floundering with nothing to take hold of. And they're gravitating towards groups uh, that are trying to be helpful. You know, I think where uh, they can be held accountable to another or, or they'll go to like uh, SA groups, you know, is that like sexaholics addiction or something like that, or sex addiction groups, you know, to try to overcome it and with more or less success, mostly less, because outside of the grace of God and outside of the ascetical life and the liturgical life, you know, I think ordering one's passions toward God or ordering or freeing one's self from the grip of the passion and ordering one's desires appropriately is only something that is done by the grace of God. It's not by strength of will, and this is where I think all those programs, spiritual or psychological breakdown, 
because uh, inevitably the, the the strength and the power of the things of the world are, is they're going to be greater and they're going to suck a person back in. It's only when they are immersed deeply and fully in this relationship with God and are transformed by his grace that they find freedom from what even held them in the deepest uh, addiction or grip at some point in their life. It really becomes almost a living hell for a lot of guys. And uh, uh, Climacus will tell us in a little bit that in the beginning, we don't want to lag. That in the beginning, you, you run into this spiritual struggle because how you begin shapes how you end. And if you don't end, enter into it fighting fully and with a clarity of vision about what your life is like, then you're going to find yourself in the grip of these passions into old age. And basically, he says, there's nothing more pitiable than that. And, you know, certainly as a priest, you know, I talk to a lot of people when you, they're men and women, you know, 70s, 80s, you know, who find themselves in the grip of the passions of one, one form or another, but often the bodily passions, because they're part of who are who we are, physicality, uh, that, and feel that there's no way out of that, that there's nothing uh, other than going to confession, in other words, and seeking the grace of the sacrament, but nothing then that aids them in taking hold of the grace of the sacrament in order to teach them how to struggle with these, with the passions directly. Eric. So I just want to note right now that um, after reading this description, I, I feel extremely, extremely uh, just I'm I'm not worthy to even read the kinds of things that these people are writing because I feel like on on the level of of uh, you know the irreligious man, the transgressor. Mm -hmm the Christian and uh, the lover of God, the continent man and the monk. I, I hardly, I hardly even count as a Christian mm -hmm. by his, by his measure and by his metric. Well, and so this is, this is an amazing thing for me. It's so humbling. And it's great. It, to it, read is, this. it is humbling. And I think we have to allow ourselves to be humbled by it, but not driven to desolation or despondency. In fact, John is very clear about this, that we cannot let our la past lives and our past sins become excuses for us not moving forward or not striving, agonizing to overcome these, these passions. And we will do that. Uh, in past groups we've talked, even in the gospel, we see uh, people trying to excuse themselves from the call of Christ. You know, I just got married, or I just bought a farm, or I just bought these... Uh, these cows, and so I have to take care of them. And and it says each time it uses the word excuse, and it's, in the Latin it's ex causa, free from the charge. And similarly, I think often when we will use our past or be tempted to use our past sinfulness, weakness, poverty as an excuse for not striving, for not entering into the fray, uh, and in doing this, we paralyze ourselves. And so even as he lays this out for us, and as deeply humbling as it is, uh, we have to let it simply do that, humble us. And even if it humbles us down 
to a point of nothingness, a sense of our being nothing in the face of the reality of God and his love. Because the, the nothingness of humility, and I'm stealing this from a, another spiritual writer, the nothingness of humility is far greater than the nothingness of sin. The nothingness of sin simply leads us into the greatest of darkness and destruction. The nothingness of humility that we experience in the face of these teachings, uh, or the, simply in the in the real, in the face of our sin, leads us into the arms of God, leads us to a place of healing, and uh, allows us again to see the church, the sacramental life, as 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 that place of healing, as sort of a hospital uh, analogy is probably the best for us to take hold of as we go through this text. Uh, and so we don't want to let ourselves be pulled in that direction where we think this way of life is beyond us. In fact, just the opposite is true. It's what God has revealed to us. It's what God desires. It's part of the will of God. And that's what we should place our faith in, that this is what God desires for us. And that God has given us everything in order to make it possible. And uh, to make our own sin, our own poverty, greater than the will and the love of God uh, is, I think, a disastrous move for us. You know, our faith should always be in his mercy and what he desires the most for us. People often ask that, you know, I think most people think they're damned or, uh, again, the stone is still rolled in front of the tomb. You know, I think when they see their own poverty or their own struggle. And, but, you know, when you remind them, and the Evercatinos does a great job of this in the first few hypotheses on repentance, you know, that all of heaven rejoices when a, a, someone turns toward God and a flood of grace and mercy comes upon them immediately with the slightest movement toward him. And that it is the will of God that all be saved. So it's in the mind of God. It is part of the will of God. It's not that we are saying directly, all are going to be saved. We're not falling into a kind of the heresy of a pocket of stasis here. But we are saying that in the mind of God, this is what God desires. And that he'll turn the world upside down in order to make it happen. In fact, this is what God has done. He's taken upon himself the poverty of our sin, the poverty of our, our flesh through the incarnation in order to make it a reality, not simply to go back to what Adam and Eve experienced, but to experience something far greater than we could ever imagine. And that's participation in the very life of God himself. Sue and Mark. Okay. Um, I just wanted to, the only thing I really wanted to say was um, in response to Eric, I, you know, I understand how he feels and I mean, just to read these things and feel, you know, um, just how low you are and how far you have to come because most people think they're much better than they actually truly are. But the other thing that about this, which you stated so eloquently, was just there's a lot of hope. There's just hope in being here. There's hope in reading this. And um, I think that that's the most important thing is that you can know that God intends to work with you wherever you are, whatever place you find yourself, because here you are here. That's right. So right. 
Well, I think, you know, part of this is we have to keep our eyes fixed upon Christ himself and to see the beauty there of what it is that we are to be as human beings and what by grace we become, that his virtue becomes our virtue, his strength becomes our strength, that we don't engage in this battle in isolation ever, not even in the deepest battle and the deepest and the greatest amount of temptation where you're never struggling alone and without without aid. And, you know, there's a reason that the collection of the writings of the fathers is called the Philokalia, the love of the beautiful, that we see the beauty of what it is that we are called to as Christian men and women. And uh, we don't want to lose sight of that. I and mean, we don't want to lose sight of Christ, even, even as we are reading about these things. Otherwise, I think we, we can sink into a kind of desolation. So, his mouth pure, so temperate in speech. We know from the scripture that the, you know, the tongue is you know, the, one of the most destructive of things for us. And it does not take much to, uh, f- to allow to pull us into uh, the greatest, of, and greatest lack of, uh, of charity. And his mind illumined. So he seeks to fill the mind uh, with the things of God. And we, we know mind is a hard thing, you know, in terms of how they define it and how they're using it here. Uh, whether uh, I'd have to check what the, the, the word is here, but sometimes it's the noose would be the eye of the heart, the eye of the soul, not just intellect or reason, but something more fundamental to who we are as, as human beings and seeks to keep that illumined, purified through the immersion in the life of grace, through the Holy Scriptures, the the sacramental life, obviously, and through the life of prayer that seeks constantly uh, to to be illumined by, by the grace of God. So not to allow the mind to wander to the things that are contrary to God. And that this is a, a ceaseless process for us, that our greatest desire should be to fill the mind and the heart with the love of of God. And this is where our energy and our attention should be focused. Strive to enter the narrow gate. You know, agon, agonize to enter by the narrow gate. Of all the places that we spend our energy, uh, of all the things that we give attention to, it should be our relationship with God and the struggle that is set out before us here in this writing. St. Isaac said, you know, that our life has been given to us for repentance, not for vain pursuits. And immediately that reframes our life because it's telling us that our life is meant to be a continual turning toward God and to the life that he's made possible for us in Christ. That is our life, and that should shape everything that we engage in. It should engage, it shape every station of life in this world, and, and, you know, and it's often the opposite way around. You know, God is out at the margins at best, I think, when we think of those things. So that's the monk. Uh, a monk is one who also constantly constrains his nature and unceasingly watches over his senses. 
The monk is he who keeps his body in chastity, his mouth pure. I'm sorry, uh, I jumped back a little bit there. And his mind illumined. The monk is a morning soul that both asleep and awake is unceasingly occupied with the remembrance of death. Withdrawal from the world is voluntary hatred of the vaunted material things and the denial of nature for the attainment for what is above nature. So I think just a cold reading of this certainly would be jarring to modern sensibilities and to our, our view of ourself and our life in this world. Uh, and or we might dismiss it as simply being, okay, he's saying this is the monk. But in reality, you know, I think what we're called to is this kind of interiorized monasticism because the end goal is the same for us. It's the fulfillment of what has been given to us at, at our baptism and the full embrace of that grace and the grace that comes to us through the sacramental life, what God has destined us to become. And so all the things that are being put forward to us, whatever our station in life, the constant remembrance of death, our mortality, is what brings into sharp focus how we are to be living our lives. What, what is our goal, our aim? Uh, when we lose sight of the remembrance of death, we can push off the consequence of the choices that we make in this world, and we can push off the reality of time. Think, and we can push off repentance in the process. Uh, he will say later on, the person who remembers death by the hour becomes sinless because this remembrance of death constantly keeps the person focused upon God and makes the person cleave to God through prayer. That all of a sudden he begins to see his life only within the context of the frame of that relationship. Uh, a voluntary hatred of haunted material things. So not because, not because we demonize the things of this world, but we voluntarily restrain ourselves. As we do also restrain our, our bodily desires, we restrain ourselves in our use of material things because we know the capacity that our, uh, again, our passions have to make these things ends in themselves. And until we break the grip of that passion, the setting aside of those things that become an obstacle to our freedom uh, require that we, with a kind of ruthlessness, you know, the kingdom of heaven, he will tell us, tell us suffers violence and the violent bear it away. That uh, Christ said in the gospel, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. That there are certain things in this world that we have to cut out of our life that is a sacrifice to us to cut out certain material goods that in and of themselves are good and that can be enjoyed, but because of our disordered passion will lead us into sin. And so this is what he's telling us here, that the, a kind of hatred for, for that which pulls us away from God, the part, the flip side of our love for God and our love for virtue and our desire for the kingdom is, is the hatred of sin and the realization of, of what, it, what it brings to us in this life, the great cost of it. St. John Paul II said, sin is its own punishment. And I don't think we've ever really grasped that. He, I think he understood it. But we it is so often tied 
to our own pleasure, to our own fulfillment, that we don't realize how it incapacitates us in terms of our capacity to love and uh, to receive love, how it narrows our vision of life and the world around us. And so what we find in the monks is this kind of willingness to deprive themselves on these very deep levels in order to come to know the freedom and the joy of chastity or the freedom and the, and, uh, from avarice and the joy of not being held by our, our lust for material goods. Avarice is almost, is, is one would say is worse than gluttony or lust because it's, there's an insatiable aspect to it, that the more we, we the more we have, the more that we want. You know, you, we could have two million dollars, and the next thing you know, it's that's not enough to get me what I want. I need another another couple million dollars to get me where I'm really comfortable and really feeling secure. And uh, and so the the what we find in the monks, it seems extreme to us, uh, but. It seems extreme to us because very few of us have tasted the freedom and the beauty of, of the chastity that they describe, or the freedom from the passions that they describe, and the greater capacity to love that it offers a person, and to experience that love of God. And so as we read through this, I don't think we want to, to read it with this kind of negative filter of, of denial. Because I think it's easy for us to look at the ascetical life in that fashion. It means just, you know, stripping ourselves down and through raw endurance, almost punishing ourselves and, you know, holding what it is to be a human being in contempt. Well, that's more Calvinistic than it is, you know, certainly something that arises from the, the fullness of the ascetical tradition that our view of the human person is actually very high. And it is this beauty of, of what it is to be a human being is, is what we are seeking. And we're seeking it through the grace of God and through the ascetical life. And, uh, and so we don't want to, to view the things that we're reading here only with, the, with this kind of, neg from this negative vantage point. Because I think that, that ultimately will lead us into a kind of despair or we'll give up in, in the face of it. And likewise, I think whenever we distance this struggle from Christ himself and uh, the love of the heavenly bridegroom, then it becomes something that's a crushing weight for us rather than something that brings joy. One should speak of the joy of asceticism or the love of fasting, the love of prayer, if all these things are things that bring us closer to God, allow us to experience a greater and deeper intimacy with him or a deeper longing for him, that should be our experience. And that's what John will say in another few paragraphs here. This is one of the problems with moving so slowly. But in another few paragraphs, he'll illuminate us. So we should just listen to him rather than listen to me blather on. But he'll say, you know, for those who have practiced asceticism for years and don't come to know that joy, they are to be pitied. 
because what they have done is they've embraced this discipline and it hasn't borne that fruit of freedom and joy. They feel oppressed by it. And it can even lead them into maybe a kind of pride might be the greatest joy that they have in it of seeing themselves as, you know, these spiritual athletes, but it doesn't bring them the joy of the kingdom or the joy of, of life in Christ. Asceticism, and then I'll get to Daniel here, can be a psychological defense. And this is something that psychoanalysis did offer us that was true in its view uh, of certain aspects of religion, that we can clamp down on ourselves in this defensive posture because we're so frustrated with these realities that we will em embrace this very disciplined lifestyle more to give ourselves a sense of control. And it might, so the ascetical life might be reduced to exactly that, but we could end up in that pitiable state where we've just denied ourselves, we've squashed down all of these desires, but we have not come to know the freedom of the life of grace or freedom in Christ. And so we desperately want to avoid, I think, reading John's writing in that light. Because it won't bring us to the end that we desire. Daniel. I'll try to be brief, but um, kind of on that topic, I was reading, um, or I read out of uh, St. Gregory Narcs, I think it's called Speaking with to God from speaking with God from the depths of the heart. Mm -hmm. And he wrote in there, it's just the way he said it. It's along the lines of what you were saying there, but I just never heard it phrased quite that way where he says, he's talking to God and he says, you are, you are called man loving, not angel loving. Mm -hmm. He said, because the angels you made servants to, and you put them in powers and principalities to rule over it and govern different things. But man, man you graced with your own image and your own what you know like th things like that and it was very powerful and and when you kind of put that in conjunction of what you're talking about and asceticism as well and you think about grace with with your own image well the image is christ and then the reason that you're fasting or the reason you're praying or the reason you're doing something like quite simply is because he did those things mm -hmm. And the more you, you, you know, not that you're just trying to fast, I guess, whatever, for whatever sake, but I mean, the more you are doing the things that he did, the more you are, are, um, you know, I guess also entering into asceticism. And at the same time, the more you are becoming truly like a Christian, right? The more you're becoming truly more like Christ, mm -hmm. um, and I think that just that fits in with like that you said the dignity of of the human person as opposed to like the more Calvinistic self hatred, um, and the the difference between uh, you were saying earlier I think um, about the uh, difference of the nothingness of humility versus the nothingness of sin. Um, I just I I, I don't know I, it it really was impactful when for me at least when I read that right that it was it was like you are called man loving you became you you donned our own flesh and our own image and you know our own nature and joined it to yours and so 
quite simply all we're doing. We're not, we're not like dis. I mean, in a sense, you're disciplining yourself, but you're not even disciplining yourself in a sense. You're not self-punishing yourself. You're not doing those things as much as you are striving to live more and more like Christ. That's right. Yeah. There's, you know, I think the clarifying point for us here is that there's a, it's fundamentally relational, you know, that we're not engaged in the the asceticism that often surrounds our aptitude for certain things or our talents and abilities in sports, academics, as we talked about music, that this has to do with our relationship with God and is only seen in and through that relationship with God. And, uh, you know, there's some beautiful things that you that sort of fall on the tail end of what you were saying, that at, at the Easter vigil, if you've ever gone to it, when the Easter candle is lit, the deacon or the priest will sing the exaltet, and which begins, you know, uh, oh, uh, let's see, if I can't remember, if I can remember the words of it now, uh, oh, oh, necessary sin of Adam, oh, happy fault. Oh, necessary sin of Adam that gained for us such a redeemer. And it, it's suggesting and, and stating to us that because of uh, Adam's fault, God has done something for us greater than we could have imagined. It's not just a, a return to this original uh, uh, innocence, but to an elevation to uh, an experience of intimacy with the triune God himself. There's a danger in viewing things as a ladder. And I, I know it's a funny thing to say when we're reading a book called The Ladder of Divine Descent, but it, because it creates this linear view of the spiritual life, that we're climbing up a ladder or a mountain of virtue. And so we're, you know, we're striving uh, to, to get up to the top of the ladder. And there can be a subtle distortion in that for us because uh, the opposite of, of sin uh, or the opposite of vice has uh, been said is not virtue, but rather Christ living within us. And this is what transforms us. This is what elevates us and lifts us up. It's only our humbling ourselves, our acknowledgement of our nothingness, uh, you know, that there is this kind of synergy. But the element, the emphasis for us as Christians is always on the grace of God, what God has done for us. We have to embrace that in our freedom. But it's really the God who lifts us up in that humility. He who humbles himself will be exalted. When we acknowledge our need for God, what God, what God has given us, what he alone can offer us is when we are raised up. So it's not just our climbing up this ladder, muscling our way up. It's, it's really allowing us to take hold of what Christ alone can give us. Sam, and you'll, you'll get the last word tonight. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, sorry, I was muted there. <laughs> I didn't mean to take in the last last uh, mm -hmm. word. Uh, I, first of all, this is my first class. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. I love this community here as well. The, the word that's on my heart here is the difference between taking and receiving. Mm -hmm. um, and especially I think is 
we live in this consumer culture, which is all about take, 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 take. But this distinction that you're making about joyful asceticism, mm-hmm. instead of take, 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 mm-hmm. stop and pay attention to what we're actually receiving right. or to seek to receive in communion with him, both the, the good and the bad, right? Like trusting that the sufferings that come our way are covered in grace and are an opportunity to grow and actually are offering something better than what we might want in our flesh, right? But also to know that there are going to be joys and there are going to be good things that come our way. And the thing that's important is receiving it in communion with him. And I, I'm, as I'm saying that, I'm, I'm connecting that to Paul talking about, I know what it is to feast and I know what it is to, to be in famine. And, and so, and I mean, I completely butchered that, but <laughs> a beautiful Perfect. section of scripture. I feel, and I, I feel like what was being described here is a journeying into that space to where there's a holy indifference as to whether or not you're in that feast or you're in that famine because you're there with him and he's governing that moment. That's right. Very, very well put. And I think if we could take hold of that, then I think our reading of the book will be much different. You know, always in relationship, again, to the heavenly bridegroom who, who draws us to himself. And even, you know, our sense of asceticism is formed really, I think, most beautifully in that passage in the Gospels when Jesus is talking about a specific ascetical practice, fasting. You know, when he's questioned why his disciples don't fast, he says, when they have the bridegroom with them, they, they do not fast. This is the time for feasting. But there will come a time when the bridegroom is taken away, and then they will fast. A whole new kind of fasting emerges now in light of the revelation of, of Christ and becomes rooted not only in this penitential practice, but now in desire for the heavenly bridegroom, the one who alone can nourish us upon what satisfies the deepest longings of the human heart. And, and this is how we should understand and view all the things that we're talking about, the ascetical life. It's all to draw us more fully into that life of Christ. And outside of that, I think, again, we, we lose sight of the beauty of it. Okay. So we're just getting rolling here. It's like... Uh, you know, a steam engine sort of getting the wheels rolling, but what we're going to pick up, we'll pick up speed here in the weeks to come. I promise we're going to get through more than one paragraph a night. So uh, uh, don't let my rambling tonight put you off future weeks. Uh, but it's it's always, I think, time well spent to unpack it. But thank, for, thank you for all your wonderful comments again here tonight. And uh, I look forward to seeing you next week where we'll pick up with paragraph number five. Uh, of the of the first step and so when we close as always with the our father in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit amen our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks to God.